Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we slowly emit science over these radio waves. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature giant cuttlefish and are cell phones linked to brain cancer? A call for concern? Cell phone emissions may be carcinogenic, says the WHO. The International Agency for Research on Cancer said there's now enough evidence for the new classification of radio frequency of electromagnetic fields to be classified as possibly carcinogenic to humans. A working group of 31 scientists, including two Canadians, assessed the evidence of the potential link between health and cell phone use at a week-long session in Lyon, France to find that exposure to electromagnetic fields, such as those emitted by wireless communication, could be harmful. Dr. Jonathan Samet of the University of Southern California explains, The bottom line, after reviewing essentially all the evidence that is relevant to looking at radio frequency of electromagnetic fields, changes the working group classification to possibly carcinogenic to humans. This conclusion means that there could be some risk, and therefore we need to keep a close watch for a link between cell phones and cancer risk. The category is known as Group 2b, and it is used when there is limited evidence of carcinogenicity in humans and less than sufficient evidence in experimental animals. The IARC's decision, supported by a vast majority of members of the working group, did not quantitate the risk. Pending the availability of additional information, IARC Director Christopher Wilde said, it is important to take pragmatic measures to reduce exposure, such as hand-free devices or texting. However, it is important to note that the IARC has only assessed the potential that electromagnetic fields are a possible health hazard in some circumstances, and not the likelihood that in normal use they do cause risk. The Group 2b classification, which is the agent is possibly carcinogenic to humans, is used for agents for which there is some suggestive evidence, but there is limited or insufficient evidence of carcinogenicity. Just to give you a background idea of what this group 2B includes, it also includes gasoline, pickled vegetables, and coffee. So the straight article coming from the WHO sounds a little bit alarming, and I thought it would be interesting to discuss this as a panel on diffusion. Joining me in the studio are Julianne Popple and Ian Wolfe. To um, put this in relative terms, what is this classification? What does it mean for people who use cell phones, which is probably everyone listening to this radio program? So I guess to get the ball rolling on this discussion, one thing that really jumped out of me was the five possible categories of risk that exist for things that can cause or not cause cancer in humans. So you've got group one, that's your highest risk. It's for things that have been proven to cause cancer in humans. So we're thinking smoking, asbestos, alcohol, etc. Group 2A, that includes things that are probably carcinogenic to humans, but the evidence is limited 
and there's good evidence in animal studies because obviously it can be study easier to study animals in such regards, but ethically difficult in humans. Uh, group 2B, this is the one that now includes mobile phones. It's kind of a catch-all for a lot of things and their relation to cancer. It means there's some evidence for a risk. It's not that convincing. It means limited evidence, something that causes cancer in people, and there might be evidence in animal studies, but it's less than sufficient, so it might not be stat statistically significant. Group 3 is something that's not classified as to its carcinogenity to humans. That's just, it means there's not enough research. And then group four is something that probably doesn't cause cancer in humans. And as a funny little tidbit, there's only one chemical listed in this group, and that's caprolactam. So there's kind of a running joke that everything causes cancer, but actually it's just that we tend to be much more thorough in our invest investigations of things that might cause cancer. So. Yes, I was noting that coffee is on the list and that's almost as important as mobile phones to a lot of people. Now, we don't give coffee to children because there's a tiny risk involved in drinking coffee. Should we apply that to mobile phones as well since there's a tiny risk? Well, that's what the IARC recommends. They recommend that children under 16 don't have extended phone conversations using mobile phones and limited use because we don't actually know yet. And as we were discussing during our Fukushima special, um, children tend to be particularly sensitive to radiation damage because their cells are replicating and they have a long lifetime ahead of them to suffer from the after effects of radiation. So perhaps not until you're over 16, kitties. Well, I haven't read it extensively on this topic, but um, how in the research that you've read... Um, how much usage are they talking about here? What is extensive usage and what is enough to cause risk? How often do you have to talk on your mobile phone for it to be a risk? So the 31 researchers looked at all of the data available to them, and that's a very heterogeneous sample in terms of what the average cell phone use was. Some studies which might have shown some risk to increase cancers, such as gliomas or acoustic neuromas, showed very high levels of use in relation to these cancers. So it would be over 30 minutes of um, continuous cell phone use every day. Obviously, this doesn't apply to most people and how they use their cell phones, but it does mean that people who use cell phones frequently for their jobs, for instance, should probably be cautious. Um, I know the WHO suggests using hands-free or texting as another mode of communication. But Ian, I, think, I believe you were saying earlier that there is a problem with hands-free as well. Well, hands-free relies on Bluetooth, which is another form of radio, except it's much less power, I expect, because it's a very short distance. That's right. Just over a few metres. So is it the same technology? It's different technology, but it's still radio waves. But as I said, I think it's very low-powered, so it's probably much, much better. It's going to cause you much less risk. At, if there's any risk at all, it's so low it's not funny because it's low-power. But as for people who don't have their job, there was a woman who was arrested after a 16-hour train trip where she spoke continuously on the phone and bothered all the commuters around her. So there are people who will just abuse anything. Yeah, I saw that article, um, and I was just thinking before you said that it won't affect most people, but there are a lot of people who will talk throughout the whole bus trip. I catch the bus, and, you know, 30 minutes, they could easily do that in one commute each day. 
that's true. So I guess listeners out there should think about their own cell phone use and see how it applies to them. We were also discussing earlier how much radiation is involved in a phone call. Well, that's a really good question. My understanding is that it depends on how far away you are from a base tower. The further away you are, the more your phone puts out more power to reach the further distance. So if you're not far away, it's not too powerful. But if you're really far away, or if it's something's blocking the power like you're underground, then it's going to be putting out as much as it can. Uh, which is why it was originally a problem on airlines, because the phones were putting out maximum power each because there's no base tower there at all. And the solution, of course, wasn't just to turn them off, but to put little base towers in the, phone, in the aircraft. All right. I read that the radiation emitted from phones wasn't enough to cause DNA damage, which is the type of radiation that we generally worry about in terms of how it causes cancer. However, it does cause other physiological effects. Can you tell us about those? Yes, I've read that it causes warming, that it heats up just a little bit, and also that neurons fire a bit faster when they're warmed up by the radiation. So that hasn't been shown to be harmful, but I don't know if I want my neurons firing at different rates. Some other things that came up to my mind as I was thinking about this um, sort of hysteria, I feel, that's been going through in relation to this new information from the WHO is that there hasn't really been, to my knowledge, a huge increase in rates of brain cancer. However, compared to increased rates of cell phone use, it's just an exponential increase in cell phones. So I would have expected that there would be lots more cases of brain tumors if there was a consistent link with cell phone usage. What do you think? It's. I agree. It doesn't seem to be showing up. I think part of what's happened with the way people grab onto the story is that when there is a direct link, like there are anecdotal cases, there are individual cases where people do have brain cancer that looks like it's right around where they used to hold their mobile phone. Now, there's very, very, very few of those cases, not enough to be good science, but enough for those individual cases to stand out and people look for those sort of patterns. And I think there there's a lot of media hype surrounding do cell phones cause brain cancer? And yes. so when these cases of brain cancer do crop up, people often will have something called the recall bias, which is they will remember that they've been using their cell phones, which can definitely affect the results of these studies, I think. Uh, another weakness in the studies so far is that the cell phone technology is changing really quickly, and brain cancers take a long time to develop. So even if we do see a risk between brain cancers and cell phone technology, we don't know if it's the old technology or the new technology. We don't. There might still be a link to brain cancers that just take a very, very long time to develop because it's still re relatively new technology. So, Just to play a bit of devil's advocate here, I know it's a little bit of hoo-ha going on about, and you're saying it maybe it's a bit hyped up, the fuss and the, the connection between brain cancer and mobile phone usage. But one possibility is that maybe this increased intention will have a good impact on the industry. Maybe if mobile phone companies, for instance, are forced to pay attention to this, forced to look at the uh, radiation output of their technology, then maybe they'll be advertising to their customers and, and adapting their technology to minimise that output and minimise that risk, and that could only be of benefit. People have been afraid of mobile phone radiation before, and there's a whole industry of fake mobile phone anti-radiation stickers. They just don't work. The stickers? Yes. <laughs> I, I have trouble imagining how a sticker could stop it, radiation, personally. 
I, I'm looking forward to a large study which is called COSMOS, C-O-S-M-O-S, which includes researchers from the UK and four other countries, and it's been set up to look at the long-term effect of mobile phone use after 20 or 30 years. And unlike a lot of the other research surrounding cell phone use, this is a cohort study, which means they're starting off with a very large group of healthy people, and they are tracking how much they use their cell phones daily and what diseases they go on to develop. So it's a pretty rigorous um, setup, and I look forward to reading about those results. Probably decades too late for me to alter my cell phone use. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. Diffusion is brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. You can listen to us over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, let's not be in enemies, let's cuttlefish, with Ian Wolfe and Patrick Ruby. Now... There's a story that uh, didn't quite make the news for, for lack of detail, but um, I want to get to this very quickly anyway, because I thought it was a, a little odd. 
giant cuttlefish. Have you ever seen a giant cuttlefish? I have never seen a giant cuttlefish. Have you seen an ordinary size cuttlefish? I have actually. I've seen an ordinary cuttlefish, I think at Sydney Aquarium. Well, for our listeners who haven't heard of them outside of bird cages, cuttlefish are cephalopods. They're members of the same family as squids. They've got tentacles, they've got chromatophores so that on the surface of their skin, they actually put complex patterns and colours. They can change the, the patterns that they show. Chromatophores. So that sounds as if that's that's something that you use to change colour, sort of chameleon-like. Exactly. Or... Not chameleon-like. They're not doing it for disguise. They're doing it for communication because they're very, very, very visual. Basically, imagine if instead of hands to gesture and a voice to speak with, you had a TV screen and eyes, right? Okay. So that's a lot of bandwidth, right? Yeah. So that's what they've got. And a lot of cephalopods have that the equivalent of that because they've got these chromatophores that let them change the colours on their skin pixel by pixel, controlled entirely by their brain and their nervous system. So what do they use this changing colour for? Well, ordinary cuttlefish, I'm not sure about giant ones, but <laughs> the ordinary ones at least, hypnotise their prey. They're carnivorous. They put a hypnotic pattern, an animated hypnotic pattern across their skin and watching fish or humans or whoever's in the way becomes hypnotized. And seeing them in the aquarium, I became hypnotized watching the pattern. It just really drew me in. Wow. That sounds incredible. So and if they're giant, I'm told that diving amongst the giant cuttlefish at Wyala, in Wyala in South Australia in particular, which is where this big population is, it's a marine park, is supposed to be quite an amazing experience that tourists around the world come because there's a lot of them. This is where they breed. It's where they live. It's their habitat. So they're not just big, you know, high definition TVs um, with tentacles, but there's lots of them and, and they're social and they, they communicate with each other as well as hypnotizing prey. Wow. So it'd be quite and amazing. Giant. And they're giant. <laughs> so I was tipped by my friend Charles, who's a diffusion team member who's busy on his PhD, that there's some news recently about the giant cuttlefish. So I looked it up and I found the cuttlefish have been in the news before. So they're most recently in the news because of, well, this is the thing, there's several stories. There's a uranium mine not far away. And the uranium mine is going to have a desalination plant to service all its water needs, which are huge. Mm -hmm. And this desalination plant, of course, has to be built on the cuttlefish habitat at Wyala Bay. So they're going to destroy the habitat, basically. And they've put in supplementary environmental impact statements, and they've been asked to put some extra ones in because, obviously, the world's looking to this to see whether or not environmental laws matter. Because if they're allowed to go ahead, obviously they don't. Because okay. there's no question this is a marine park. There's no question this is unique. And there's no question this is scientifically important. Uh, it's diverse, important for diversity. And it's a tourist thing. And, it, and it's why on earth can't they do it somewhere else, for goodness sake? It's not like Australia's short of coastline. Which water's what they need from the coast. We've got a lot of seawater around. We're an island nation. So these giant cuttlefish, they only live in a very specific area, they do. do they? They do. They live in this one place... Now, this is not the first time big businesses tried to make money out of the habitat of the cuttlefish. The earliest one I found was 2007, 
and a fertiliser company wanted to make explosives on the habitat. They basically wanted to make ammonium nitrate, and we thought, okay, explosives and giant cuttlefish, this is good. <laughs> and basically, you know, it was like, don't do that, that's terrible. In one explosion, it'll just destroy the area. Um, you know, it's, it's fragile. And then the next time, it was oil. Yes, they want to put oil pipelines through the cuttlefish habitat. Originally, they were just going to deep sea dredge. Now, dredging just means you just rip up the whole sea floor. You just destroy everything in sight without even noticing what's around. Like, total disaster area. And because the government said, well, hold on a bit, that sounds a bit extreme. But we're not going to say no, because we never say no. So <laughs> instead... We ask you for it to, to look a bit harder and see if you can do a bit better. So I said, no, all right, we won't dredge. We'll put pipes through instead. We'll just actually dig holes right through. And, well, basically the scientists have looked at it and said, it's just as bad. There's no improvement from putting pipes through. So do you want explosives factories, oil pipelines, and uranium mines next to each other, let alone on a unique giant cuttlefish habitat? Mm, it's bizarre. Question. It's I'm, bizarre. Like, what next? I'm sure the cuttlefish are not very happy. <laughs> well, if <laughs> well, they had feelings, they wouldn't be very happy at the situation. It's it's rather odd. It's rather odd. So I think we need to uh, document these giant cuttlefish before the explosions in the oil pipeline ignites the uranium. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they'll be in quite a bit of trouble. <laughs> What's in the ocean? What's in the What's ocean? What's in the ocean? What is there to see? Mud on the bottom. Waves on the surface. Fish in the middle. Swimming rapidly. Kingfish and codfish. Sailfish and swordfish. Small fish and large fish. Moving restlessly. Patrick Ruby talking about cuttlefish. And for a little bit of very unsciencey music, here is Noah and the whale singing to atoms in a molecule.
Night I had a dream, we were inseparably entwined Like a piece of rope made out of two pieces of vine Held together holding each other with no one else in mind Like two atoms in a molecule inseparably combined Tragic event, I must admit, but let's not be overblown I'm not trying to write a love song, it's a sympathetic moan And maybe I just need a change, maybe I just need a new cologne But now I look at love like being stabbed in the heart You torture each other from day to day and then one day you part Most of the time it's misery, but there's some joy at the start And for that I'd say it's worth it, just use your blade this short and sharp on me And if love is just a game, then how come it's no fun? If love is just a game, how come I've never won? I guess maybe it's possible I might be playing it wrong And that's why every time I roll the dice, I always come undone And that's all from us, this time on Diffusion. You can send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2ser.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings, and stories. If you'd like to be on the radio and you live in Sydney, we'd love to have more volunteers on Diffusion. Do subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Julianne Popel, Ian Wolfe, and Patrick Ruby. I've produced Diffusion this week in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs>